0: And good morning, Gary.
1: And good evening, Jonathan, on what is a severe thunderstorm, miserably October day in Chicago, which is supposed to be spring. Sounds awesome. We don't get that it's very much. Fresh. It is. Yeah, um, we... And I just finished my last class for the semester, so I can start, as soon as I finish grading papers, start thinking about all the things I need to do about <laughs> the summer's convention schedule. And the summer's convention schedule is beginning... For you, almost immediately. It does. It starts well. Arguably, it started this morning when I
0: picked up uh, the first of the attendees at the airport that I know, because Simon Brown flew in from Phuket. Uh, but uh, and then we're having dinner tonight, and then into the convention tomorrow. And I, I'm almost stunned to sort of find that I'm doing more program items at this convention than I have in the preceding 10 years of Swan Cons, I guess. Um, because I've got a whole bunch of things I'm interviewing Sean Williams and doing all kinds of things so it should be lots of fun it should be really busy and a full weekend
1: not to embarrass you but I suspect one of the reasons for that and I realize Swan Con is very, it, it, it is very much uh, an Australian tradition mm. uh, but right now uh, and I would almost but not quite include Sean in this outside of Greg Egan who is better known in the States and in England than you are among australian members of our community i i struggle to answer that question i would have thought your juliet Merilliers and your
0: scott westerfeld's and your justin la, la and your sarah douglases
1: and those sort of people i would have thought would be better known possibly i mean uh, <laughs> but 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 when you eliminate the young adult community from that list and you eliminate the short fiction community <laughs> from that list you've got a lot of books which we keep i do we keep seeing here in the states
0: i've been very fortunate in fact that's one of the odd things i actually have far more profile outside of australia than i do in it you know so um people are much more unaware of what i do here because almost all my books are published in the states i've had one or Uh two in the uk and i've had a couple here but you know, not that much, really. Uh, you don't see them in the bookstores here. So, yeah, it's very much a, a an American thing rather than an Australian thing. And I think that's part of the reason why, apart from my own predilections, that um, I've had a comparatively low profile at local conventions over the years. So, you know, but it's fun to sort of do, do, you know, try it this way and see sort of go along, have fun. There's some good people. Ellen Datlow's main guest of honor, along with Justina Robson and Sean Williams. So I think it promises mm-hmm. to be a good weekend. I
1: wish I were there. I Um, wish you were, too. I think you'd have a great time. We could have done a live podcast. Well, let's keep that in mind. If you can round up some people that want Mm -hmm, to talk, mm -hmm. I'll be around. Absolutely. Um,
0: Even though I was trying to explain to somebody the other day just how disconcerting I find it to do a podcast with someone who's actually in the room now.
1: Um it, it it can work in various ways. The last one we did, I guess, was the yep. one we did uh, in conjunction with the Locust podcast yep. with uh, with with Jeff Ford and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and Liza and, uh, and and Karen and Curtis, and it was a lot of fun because you can sort of uh, when you have more than one people, more than one person, it's you you, you do a lot with with nonverbal communication. Uh, there's a there's a actually I'm going to be on a local. Uh, it's not a local, it's actually a national radio program. I just yeah. agreed to do this today. Not about science fiction at all. There's a radio show that's been on for decades here in Chicago. On what they call a clear channel, WGN radio. Yeah. Which means that no other radio station in the entire entirety of North America has the same frequency. Yeah. And I, I've been on that with uh, a lot of people and it fascinates me because the guy who does that is a master of nodding and gesturing and waving he conducts the entire radio program from okay. his booth and and that's what you do when you get a group of people together yeah um, yeah so. see but you've done that far more than i have when i've done group podcasts
0: they've generally been done uh, over skype so for me the natural thing for me to look at when I am doing a podcast is at the microphone and at a computer screen, rather than at someone's face. I I think I've done the ones that you and I did at World Fantasy I think, are some of the only ones I've done face to face so it's it's interesting anyway so, you know what we should say? You're sitting there, there's a huge storm outside Uh, I've just started reading Daniel Abraham's new novel, The Dragon's Path which I'm enjoying so far
1: an excellent novelist.
0: He is. I, 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 why haven't, did you read the Long Price Quartet?
1: I, I you know, what was interesting is, um, and it's another issue that comes up with every awards committee. I read the last, I had not read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last volume was uh, one of the ones we were considering for uh, the World Fantasy sure. Award. And I was very impressed by it. And yeah. I, I really wanted to read the entire series as a result. And I went back, I actually started the first one. It really is a skilled writer and a talented writer. Yeah. But, of course, the issue that came up is you're essentially looking at a single volume for that year's award when, in fact, the work that should be considered is the work of, of four to five years. Well, uh, true. When, in other words, what do you do with trilogies, with series, especially ones that have a coherent narrative arc that aren't just going on endlessly because you're uh, you know, recycling the same characters?
0: The only uh, thing you can do is try and take the individual book you have in front of you as a standalone thing.
1: You have to ignore the rest of the series. Well, it's easier to do that with the first book in a series. It is. Um, if, if you look at the shadow, to to use the most obvious, probably the most famous example of all, the Gene Wolfe series, mm. the very, very first, well, the Gene Wolfe, what's the plural of series? I guess it's series. Uh, <laughs> but the, fir- the first book of the uh, uh, book, book of the New Sun. The book of the New Sun was sure. first one. Now, uh, Shadow of the Torture, I think, received a number of awards, Mm -hmm. because it was clear that something phenomenally exciting was going on. And then you have two books in the middle, and then you have a book at the end. There is a way that there should be a way to honor a series which is completed more or less triumphantly, the way that one was. And Mm -hmm. even, even though there were other series afterwards, that series was a piece by itself. Uh, the the Abraham book I had the same sense that uh, the you know the other series that uh, struck me as as one that didn't get as much recognition as it might have because of that factor was Paul Park's Princess of Romania series. You're probably right.
0: The, the um, problem with all of this, uh, un- unless you bundle the books out in a single year, as happens very rarely though occasionally, um, is that you can't get somebody to read a whole series as a practical thing. You can't turn around and say, well. This year, six series finished, which was the best one? Let's give it a series award. We spent some time uh, on my World Fantasy Award jury as well talking about it because we had quite a contentious mm-hmm. one to look at, uh, which was the, I think the second, no, the third, the third of the George Martin Song of Ice and Fire volumes was up for the, well, was you know, eligible for the World Fantasy mm-hmm. the year that we did. And what we found was, in its case, the book is totally unreadable if you haven't read the first two books so whilst it may be a brilliant series installment it wasn't a very good novel and so we were able to walk away from it and we did we went around saying there should be some way to do this there should be a some kind of series award some kind of series acknowledgement but i think everybody just falls at the how do you possibly do this for a start song of ice and fire wouldn't be eligible for 25 years or something um, the series that finished in three or four years would still involve half a million words of reading each time. I mean, your Daniel abrams series, which got great notices, and in fact, is written up again today yep. on 4.com dot com. I noticed um, it's got to be quarter of a million words, half a million words, or something. There's four hundred thousand word books, or something. That's a lot of reading for people to manage.
1: That's a lot of reading uh, to catch up to see if something is a candidate, and mm. it's the sort of thing that I mean, Charles. Uh, and by the way, thank you, John. It's not not doing everything the way Charles did, but Charles sometimes would tell me, "You've got to, <laughs> you've got to read this. You've got to read this book. You've got to read the new John Crowley book." But you have to go back and read the first three again. <laughs> and, and, Char- and I'm saying, Charles, my deadline is in two weeks. What are you expecting of me here? <laughs> everything. Everything, of course. Uh, but but it is an issue. I mean, it's it, it, it it's, it's an issue that comes up. I mean, you wonder if there'd been World Fantasy Awards back in the '50s if the Two Towers uh being the middle book which again doesn't make a lot of sense without the beginning and ending uh would have been considered uh the best fantasy novel of the year um uh, well the question uh, depends, ironically how, how in terms
0: close of, did they come out together though
1: oh they came out within i don't that's a good question i think within about 18 months
0: see well, i think i think you might have found that you'd get the same kind of thing you're getting this year with um the connie willis it you could know. be Yeah, Uh, because where they would have been run together, because I think they came out very closely together indeed. So anyway, you were saying?
1: Well, I was saying that the the, one of the few cases I can think of where the Oscars actually probably got it better than we did was Mm. if you remember the the first two films in the um, Lord of the Rings series. I don't think they may have picked up some special effects awards, Mm. but then when the Return of the King comes out, it picks up every award in the field. Yeah, because yeah. I think people seeing the film as people reading the novel realized this really adds up to a single massive brilliant work and I think it worked that way uh, for what it was in film as, as well as it does uh, and in a sense the, the all those Academy Awards that the, that the Return of the King got were clearly not for that single movie well no no and I think it was an element of well we didn't give it to
0: them before so we better give it to them now this is the last chance uh, yeah. and, that. and I just had a quick look because you know I, I like to cheat. Everybody hears me tapping away and end up on the internet. Yes. Uh, Lord of the Rings was published in July 54, November 54, and October 55. So my guess is you would have seen the first two books showing up on the World Fantasy ballot that year. And possibly splitting the vote. Possibly. But it would have been interesting to see. It would have been. This, this leads me to something because, of course, as you know, Gary, at least here in Perth, winter is coming.
1: I realize that.
0: And uh, a couple of nights ago in uh, sunny Chicago, uh, winter arrived early in the form of HBO's *A Game of Thrones*, or in fact, to be more correctly *Game of Thrones* because there's no "R" uh, in their t- TV show title.
1: Oh, I did not notice that distinction. Mm, apparently, what did you think of this example of epic fantasy on the television set, Gary? I was first of all, I was noticing on Twitter today that uh, people were commenting about how. It's been renewed for a second season. Mm. Uh, in fact, that renewal was done before the first episode even uh, yes. was, was shown, which means there's a great there's a great deal of confidence that uh, that HBO has in this series. My my impression, my first impression from the opening shots of the uh, snow covered forest is that this is absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. This looks exactly the way it should look. Um, it's sort of within that. Uh, introductory sequence of, of, of the white walkers beheading people yeah. and so forth got at the brutality and got at the uh, the beauty of the series mm-hmm. um, the problem that I had now keep in mind I read the first volume and haven't caught up with the others sure, I, sure. but everything this uh, so far everything is in the first volume um, I wonder how well a complex series with well thousands of characters in the series reduced presumably to Maybe a dozen or so main uh, viewpoints in the in the series. I don't know how that's going to work because this is, as we talked about, uh, a series which deals with political machinations more than it deals with fantasy elements.
0: Sure, sure. The fantasy elements are and always have been fairly minimal. You know, this has been a A a, a secondary world, historical almost, more than a straight fantasy novel or fantasy series. Mm -hmm. And I say that being exactly the same position as you. I read Game of Thrones, I guess it was what, 1997 or something it came out?
1: A long time ago, yeah.
0: And I haven't read any of the sequels, although I was very impressed with the first book. I just haven't had a chance to. And then you get into that strange sort of thing where you're best off waiting till the end of it and in fact that's what struck me as much as anything about this show last night apart from the fact that parts of it looked like they could have been clipped out of rome actually but um yes but apart from that what i thought was there are 10 episodes i just watched the first one and loved it maybe i'm better off waiting until all 10 episodes are out than watching it as a whole
1: well essentially that's what i thought when i finished the game of thrones and i knew that the the george was a long way at that point from from, from finishing the series. Mm-hmm. And I really am not somebody who is very good at waiting for series. So I thought, uh, very vaguely, at some point in the future, I'm going to uh, read the entire series when it's done. Yeah. I, I I would feel the same way about Game of Thrones, except I'm really bad about watching entire series on DVD. I just it's only 10 can't, episodes. Can't, yeah, 13 episodes. I can't find time to do that. Yeah. Um, I did find myself thinking about things. Uh, you, you mentioned parts of it looked like it could have come from Rome. Parts of it looked like it could have come from... Um, almost any generic medieval fantasy in terms of the costuming, in terms of the uh, horseplay and so forth and so on. And I found myself thinking irrelevantly uh, that why is it that in a completely alternative universe, which may or may not be another planet, it may or may not be a kind of middle earth, maybe an alternative, um, that everybody seemed to have the same technologies available to them. They're all using bows and arrows. They all have the same armor they all use the same kind of leather work in other words uh, it, it's a cliche going back a long time that uh, uh, that the middle ages or at least the pop culture middle ages sure became the template for fantasy True. and it's still
0: there well it does i mean this this is okay a game of thrones which i really liked is a war is war of the roses rewritten by someone who likes to play with tin soldiers
1: and we know that George R R Martin likes to play with tin
0: soldiers. That's my point. It's all about sweeping set pieces where you can move your thousands of little lead men around and have them fight. Mm-hmm. And this this actually touches on something else, and it actually broadens out beyond Game of Thrones itself for a minute. There was quite an interesting uh, piece written by Nicola Griffith for her blog about Game of Thrones, where she expressed her both her pleasure and her disappointment in the series. And she mm-hmm. said, yeah, so there's a lot she liked about it, but she was disappointed that they didn't address the issues raised in the original book in terms of it being, oh, sexist and gendered, and the fact that really the only women you see in it are used as sex objects and they're basically rape victims and that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm, you know, sort of. Uh, probably paraphrasing her very poorly, but th- the couple things that occurred to me. The first was I wasn't sure, I thought her points were valid, but I'm not sure I think it's reasonable to expect a TV show to change a book like that. But what mm. also also occurred to me, and this is the point I was trying to get to, is, is some kind of sexist worldview inherent to this kind of big, multi-volume, uh, pseudo-middle-ages, medieval uh, fantasy series, or is it just in some examples? Are, are there good examples of where this has been avoided, or is it so inherent to the source material that that you can't avoid it?
1: Well, I I don't think it's necessarily inherent to the source material. I think it may be inherent to the dominant point of view in that source material. Mm-hmm. The reason I mention that is that um, uh, the, the the model for a lot of this, as you mentioned, is historical fiction, and mm-hmm. uh, I. Uh, 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 what what am I saying? Disclaimer here, a, a good friend of mine is Cecilia Holland, oh, yeah. who I think is one of the finest historical she novelists is. in in the United States, whose most recent series, which deals with Vikings, uh, segues into being a pure fantasy series by the time it's over. Yeah. And it's, it's very clear that she's dealing with a community in which women were severely marginalized, which yes. is an issue that any historical novelist has to do. But she was also finding ways of empowering her characters, um, that were very interesting and read that interesting way to a modern reader. So I think it's possible to do that. It's possible to write novels about Catherine of Aragon, which she's also written that do that. You have to be very, very sophisticated in your understanding of history to find out the kind of hidden powers that women were able to use uh, Mm -hmm. during extremely sexist periods. Now that's fiction on HBO. There's another set of problems and Mm -hmm. I had some problems with this myself. There is, and I I don't know the character names at this point, but the uh, the, the young woman who is—I don't know if you could hear that. There was a massive burst of lightning. Wow. Yeah. Um, the young woman who is essentially traded to the barbarian horse prince guy. Denerys. Uh, uh, yes. And uh, she's gorgeous. She's mm. absolutely lovely to look at. And one of the scenes in the opening episode of Game of Thrones, which is really disturbing, is when she is essentially raped by her husband. Yeah. And it's done very graphically. But before we have that scene, we have what seems to me to be a fairly gratuitous scene of her nude getting into a bath. So we understand just absolutely how lovely and alluring she is. Sure. You can read that one of two ways. You can read that as saying, we're HBO, so we can show nude scenes, and we can get the actress to take her clothes off, and we can exploit that, and then we're going to have a rape later, and it's still supposed to be disturbing. Uh, or you can read that as, we want, to underst- we want the viewer to understand how innocent and virginal this girl is so yeah. that the rape scene becomes more disturbing. I'm not sure which reading I came down on with that one.
0: I'm not entirely sure either. I, I was a bit... Thrown by it, I admit, uh, and several several other aspects. I also wonder, as you sort of say this, how different is it from, say, Rome? You know, I think Rome empowered its female characters much more than Game of Thrones did.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I think you're right. I I, I think that. At the moment, at least, at this stage of the story, and this isn't George's fault at all, though I'd have to go back and read George's book to know, again, honestly, if it's been 14 years since I read it, I'd have to reread it to sort of to have a feeling. But uh, I I couldn't help but feel that this far in, it's all a bit gratuitous and simple when it comes to the portrayal of female characters, which I think is really disappointing. Uh,
1: though I think it's disappointing as well. But here's the here's here's my question, and it's, it's really is a question a lot of people are wondering about the series renewal for next year. How much is this going to follow George's technique, which may be the most interesting technique in that novel, at least, of taking these characters and reversing your expectations of them halfway through the narrative. Mm. The, the, the villainous characters, begin to sh- you begin to understand their motivations. The characters who seem to be completely innocent victims, you begin to find their paths to empowerment and so forth. Uh, but right now, the um, again, uh, the Lena Headey character is, is pretty much your classic uh, uh, Augustinian shrew, sure, I guess. Sure. And, and, and the other lady, the, the, the woman whose character you mentioned, yeah. is, is clearly the virginal Sorry. victim. Yeah, And I don't really... On, on the basis of one episode, it disturbs me to think that those characters are going to follow through and not change the way George changes them in the book.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and I have no idea whether to say that. My, my initial reaction to any series like this uh that is trying to institute a very long narrative arc is that it probably is unfair to judge it too much by the first episode because all the things all the things that appear to be exploitative could completely become more complicated and reverse themselves later on if they follow george's methodology and i don't know if they're going to or not
0: well, yeah, I suspect they probably will. I think it's going to cleave pretty ser- pretty closely to what he's written. That's just the impression I have. I mean, you could see it in the first episode. We'll know firmly by the end of the season. But I, I would suspect that, I mean, and, and particularly since, I mean, the whole series, what I heard as the setup and as everybody else did who's listening to this did, I guess, is that they're going to do one book per season. That's so, what I heard. So that implies as well that, I mean, sort of, they're going to keep that structure, so... It should all come together, though you've got to figure that these these seasons are going to get longer and longer as they go, as the series continues, because, you know, 10 episodes will do your Game of Thrones, but by the time you get to Dance with Dragons, you won't fit it into 10 episodes. I mean, things as long as... It's 1,200 pages in manuscript or something, or longer, or some enormous thing. Really? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be more than 1,000 pages in hardcover. Absolutely. So...
1: One of so, the... Just as a, a minor footnote to the whole series, and this has more to do with the, the novels, I suppose, than with the HBO series. Yeah. And I didn't realize this. Uh, I hadn't thought about it way back when I read that novel. But this idea of the extended seasons, winter is coming on and it's going to last for, you know, uh, in, in, in an indefinitely longer period of time. And we were talking a, a few weeks ago about how Brian Aldous has not read much. Yep. Yep. But one of the most striking things about the Heliconia series, which predates... A Game of Thrones by a good twenty years, I'm sure. Sure, uh, is that that entire series was based on each novel was based on a season that went on essentially for generations. Yes, and and George was always a good reader, and I always wondered if there was a connection there because that conceit, which is a very striking conceit, I haven't seen very often in any other fiction.
0: I don't know that I've seen it directly. But I have seen other examples of long, stretched-out seasons, you know, so a particular season that doesn't seem to ever end. And, in fact, winter seems to be the one uh, that we like doing it to the most. I mean, the obvious example off the top of my head is um, Narnia
1: and the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, where, where winter had lasted 100 years, you know. Well, and, and, and we're, as far as I know, we're, we've got a lot of evidence that, that Lewis uh, had been reading uh, the Elder Eddas and, and reading mm-hmm. Norse mythology and the whole idea of Fimbul Winter. Uh, was sort of inherited by all of the uh, by all of the inklings mm. uh, because as as I, as I understood it, uh, Tolkien sort of shoved all this stuff in everybody else's face and said, "Here, read this."
0: Absolutely. But, uh, the thing that struck me the most actually watching the the show on on the other night was, you know, I always imagine things to be more colorful in my mind's eye than they prove to be on a screen. Uh, it, it's striking just how bleak it
1: is. I like that, actually. Oh, no, I um, like it, too, but it, it just struck me. I think one of the things that uh, happens when you try to reduce something to a photographic representation is... It's, it's interesting to go back and look, uh, which nobody does anymore. Yeah. Now, the Ralph Bakshi animated effort to do the first mm. record of the... Yes, album, yes. Which was clearly more colorful. Yeah. And clearly was, was, was more, cart well, literally cartoonish. Sure. But... Uh, but it was much more the way a young kid might read Lord of the Rings, and suddenly when it's realized you know, in its full cinematic glory, it turns out to be a lot less pretty than we thought it was going to be. Absolutely. And I, I think the same thing is going on here. I think this is this is probably exactly the—visually, I think this is probably exactly the right way to treat that material. Mm-hmm. Oh, that no looks fantastic, yeah. D- dramatically. And, and by the way, the performances seem to me to be fine as well. Uh, I just am reserving judgment as I think you are until I see a few more episodes.
0: Well, I think everybody has to, but I'm I'm I'm, you know, I'm reasonably optimistic, just and and hopeful that the things which were a concern in episode one will, you know, not be a concern in the future. Um, I mean, and it's inter- interesting as well because I tend to have, as I've aged, stopped reading epic fantasy, so it's interesting to be sort of submerged in it again.
1: Um, it's interesting. and It's also. Revealing that I guess a lot of I – mean, always, I'm always curious as to why certain things get sold to uh, Hollywood or to HBO and mm-hmm, this sort of thing. Sure. And in George's case, well, first of all, you had a massively successful series. Absolutely. Um, and uh, you had uh, a writer of the series who had Hollywood connections, knew his way around the film world from uh, from the from the uh, new Twilight Zone series and Beauty and the Beast and, and the various things it would written. So there, there's an obvious – connection between George and this world. Mm. But you know, the contrast is when uh, when Hollywood tried to get its hands on Philip Pullman, they couldn't make any sense out of that material at all.
0: There are far more failures than there are successes. I mean, the other one that comes to mind is uh, The Dark is Rising, the Susan Cooper series, which, which they the made a kai off, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, for that matter, the Narnia series hasn't really worked.
0: My girls love it, but, yeah, I tend to agree with you. And a part of it is, I think, what you're trying to put on the screen. And and, because there's the willing suspension of disbelief, everything in fantasy, and and please, if I'm being too sweeping here, knock me down. Everything in fantasy depends on a willing suspension of disbelief. You picture stuff in your mind's eye, it's believable. You put it on a screen for a whole class of things, it doesn't work so well. Yeah, I remember watching The Lion, The Wardrobe in the current iteration of the series that's being filmed. And you're watching 14-year-old boys leading large ar- armies of strange animals, and you're kind of going, really? I don't know if I really believe that. Uh, the number of dragon films that have failed because the dragon doesn't look plausible or whatever it is. Now, if you look at a Game of Thrones, which they're making... There's not a lot of fantasy on the screen. Lots of his- lot of right. secondary world history on the screen. It looks fantastic. Look at Lord of the Rings itself. A lot of it, same kind of thing, really. There is a bit of mm-hmm. it when they do the other stuff. They do it really well, but the heart of it isn't putting fantastic creatures there.
1: I I, well, I, I think, I, I think, I think
0: yeah. these things that have failed, they
1: failed on that that as much as anything. But anyway, yeah. No, I, no, I, I tend to agree, and I think one of the things that's clearly working in favor of a Game of Thrones is that it inherits a, a visual vocabulary, which moviegoers are fairly familiar with. Uh, and we, we, we've seen King Arthur films before. Uh, you know, I pro- probably the template for the whole thing, and again, it's something that I don't know is, if it's ever been put on screen quite as effectively. It's, it's the whole Arthurian saga. Yeah. Uh, certainly the I mean, Camelot is not what we read <laughs> Once in Future King. There was a film by John Borman, Called I think Excalibur, yeah, uh, I've seen it, which, yeah, which essentially was an attempt to do a historical fantasy uh, epic uh, that was in some ways very brutal and very graphic the way John Borman had made his films and there were some parts of that that I thought were strikingly effective uh, because he was trying to recreate the sensation of this is something which may or may not have a, have an historical base but which is clearly a fantasy narrative mm. and I'm going to treat it as a fantasy narrative so. Th- But it was not a huge financial success, as I recall. No, I don't think
0: it was. And there have been other kind of attempts at that sort of thing over time. Oh, yeah. uh, Before the Lord of the Rings, I mean, Hollywood um, had tried to crack the the epic fantasy particularly niche a few times and never really quite been able to get there. It was only with Lord of the Rings that they did. And then I guess they felt, well, we're on top of everything now, so we can do whatever we want. And a number of them then subsequently failed. And there's also that feeling you know, that having done Harry Potter as well, that, um, well, you had everything you needed, so away you went. But um...
1: Well, the other thing I think works with fantasy films, and I, I get into serious arguments with friends of mine about this, mm. uh, which is that I I can enjoy really, really rotten films if they look good um, because there's a visual design aspect to it. Mm. And, and if, okay, this is this is the kind of thing where, for the people who know more about the history of Hollywood film, uh, will uh, we'll get on my case. But I think the film that really... There are two films that probably really shifted the aesthetic from, from trying to recreate a prose narrative to realizing that these fantastic films are very much design-based. Yeah. Um, one, 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 one was 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is something of an outlier because it was 1968. But when I think the designers really took over the way science fiction films should feel probably was in with Blade Runner. Yeah. Uh, because the Blade Runner of the design of Blade Runner, it's one of the few, it was uh, most of the production sketches, I think were done by Sid Mead, who's mm-hmm. kind of a legendary uh, film yeah. in Hollywood. It's one of the few films I can think of, which actually influence subsequent writers, writing fiction in that, in that world. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, and, and KW Jeter even wrote a couple of novels mm-hmm. that were secret. He did. To Blade did. Runner. Yeah. So, so there was a sense in which, okay, this world has a texture to it which we can use as fiction writers. And uh, and, and to some extent, that's probably worked better. That's it, ironic. There have been very few films that have looked as good as Blade Runner since, although there are certainly lots of films with rainy, drizzly streets in them. Absolutely. Uh, but fantasy has been a much, dip, much more difficult thing to do. Um, so there was a sense uh, that, as you say, with Lord of the Rings, once we have CGI completely under control and we can film anything we can imagine— um, then, then we can do that. But the problem then is, you not only have to have decent screenwriters, but you have to have really decent designers. You do, you, and uh, that has not worked. I mean, there have been films, uh, there have been films that I thought worked very, fairly well on the basis of being a romance. I, I, sure. I actually kind of liked. Uh, okay, now I'm the uh, two, something. Lady Hawk. Oh yes, beautiful film. I actually thought it was a gorgeous film. It was. Well, it is a gorgeous film. It is a gorgeous it, it, – it looked good. It, it looked beautiful, and uh, it was a very romantic story, and it was done as a romance. The visuals were done to bring you this film as a romance, and I thought it worked pretty well, actually. Yeah. Well, I mean,
0: it, it's interesting that – I mean, you, you mentioned uh, design, and I, I think one of the things which people don't talk enough about when it comes to um, Lord of the Rings is that it all comes down to John Howe and Brian Froud giving a consistent visual and you wonder whether game of thrones will, be, will will have the same kind of visual consistency it'll plainly be critical to it i do have a, mm-hmm. a, a, a corollary question to bounce away from tv just a little bit or film a little bit and that is why do you think we're still reading epic fantasies in the volume that we do i mean surely you'd have thought to somebody hey we've got the idea and i mean i don't overly simplistic but i'm kind of curious as to Ponder through for a second why it is that these stories still keep coming out, still keep you know, appealing. I mean, here I am. I'm reading book one of The Dagger and the Coin, The Dragon's mm-hmm. Path, um, and you can you can tell between you and I that I think this is written by a friend of George Martin's, which it is, because after mm-hmm. all, I mean, because the lead character's are his last name's Wester is Wester, like, oh, a bit West Wester okay. Westeros, West, you know. Yeah.
1: But anyway, shirosh, yeah.
0: why why do you think we're still reading them?
1: I think, wow, I, one reason I, I I guess is because we know what to expect. Um, there, there, there's a basic template and you can play variations on the template endlessly and you can do it in a very literary, literary and sophisticated direction uh, the way uh, Daniel Abraham does. Mm-hmm. You could do it in a kind of formulaic direction uh, the way I suspect uh, saying this without having read them. I suspect Brandison, Brandon Sanderson is doing now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the point is, Why do we still read English Village Murder Mysteries when everybody knows uh, exactly what the formula is? Once you've learned the template, it's very comforting to read something uh, that's a variation on the template. There was a um, book, uh, which I may have mentioned before on the podcast, that nobody's read anymore because it's it's fairly uninformed about science fiction and fantasy, but it's very well informed about genre. Uh, The title was The Aesthetics of Junk Fiction. And he said (laughs) in that book, a guy named Thomas Roberts, uh, that one of the things that a certain category of reader do is they they are reading the genre. They're not reading the work. Yeah. They are reading the they are reading through the work to get at the genre that pleases them.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and all they necessarily expect of the work is that it's an interesting or novel or entertaining variation on the form. But they really are attracted to the form. Yeah. I, can I know a that. lot of people yeah. I know a lot of people who read epic fantasies and nothing else. They don't read anything else in the fantasy sure. genre. You show them a Kelly Link story, forget it. You know, you show them mm-hmm. a, a John Crowley story, it's not going to work for them. Uh, but they will read one epic fantasy after another because they know what that form is, and they're comfortable with it. I'm not saying that they're I'm not saying that epic fantasy is a bad genre no. because, as you said, with, with with Abraham and several others we could name, there are enormous or Gene Wolfe, there are enormously creative things to do with that form. Yes. Uh, But there are also enormously comforting things to do with that forum where reading a new one feels like you're returning home. I know who these people are. Let's see if you can do a little bit different here and there so I'll feel like it's new. But I really want the same thrill I've always got. Sure, sure.
0: Do we have a handy dandy, you know, way of telling what is science fiction and what isn't, or what, what is epic fantasy and what isn't? I mean, the the classic thing with Damon Knight was always, "I know science fiction. You know, it's, it's what it, what I point to and when I say science fiction." But with epic fantasy, what makes it stand out from that? What makes
1: epic fantasy epic fantasy? More than one volume. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, I got to tell you, I mean, I'm supposed to do a panel at SwanCon this weekend. Mm-hmm. And I think it touches on uh, something that you talked about on the podcast a few weeks back about this idea that editors have to actually give serious thought to genre definitions so that they can fit things into their correct slots when building books, right? And I do truly hate a good attempt at genre definitions.
1: Well, genre definitions – have, and the other thing that comes up again every time this discussion comes up is – the definitions that fans use, the definitions that theoreticians or critics or academics use, and the definitions that publishers use. Yeah. Um, none of which necessarily coincide with the whatever writers think they're writing at, at, at a given moment. Oh, sure. A few years ago, uh, a few decades ago, I should say, epic fantasy was not the term of choice. The term of choice was high fantasy. Mm-hmm. And the world was very simple in those days. High fantasy took place in a secondary world, and low fantasy involved some other world intruding into our own uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which which definitions were then refined considerably by Farrah Mendelssohn in her book rhetoric Re- 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 so fantasy you know intrusive versus immersive fantasy yeah uh, so high fantasy involved a completely invented world uh, and that seemed and then that that definition still derives very largely from Tolkien uh, mm-hmm. you can trace it back to well you could trace it back to E.R. Edison but even Edison, you know, more or less pretended these things were taking place on Mercury, so he <laughs> he he didn't entirely make a fantasy world. Yeah, but but yeah, there was a... I, I often wondered when that secondary world entered fantasy, um, and um, I think I, I actually at one point uh, actually identified a particular story where I think it might have happened. Okay, uh, in, 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 line. It was a story by a German a uh, fairy tale writer named uh, Ludwig Teek yep. uh, ca- called The Fairies. It was about 18... I'm thinking about 1830. It may have been earlier than that. It may have been as early as 1818, um, in which somebody crosses a bridge, and they're in fairyland. And they, okay. they, they they spend some time there. They come back. They find that years have passed in the real sure. world, which is now a trope in fantasy. I mean, time passes differently in Narnia than it does in our Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that was... The first time when there was, I could see somebody in in a realistic setting, in a realistic contemporary German setting, crossing a bridge and ending up in a world. We know that George MacDonald, who later wrote *Fantastes* and *Lilith*, uh, read that story. Uh, This is partly (laughs) my doctoral dissertation, so I know that. And we know that Lewis and Tolkien read George MacDonald. Yeah. So there's a possible, uh, you know, lineage there that could be traced. Uh, When it became a convention. I think it's very hard to say that there was anything you could call a convention in fantasy prior to Tolkien in the, sure. in the, in the commercial sense, in the publishing sense.
0: Yeah.
1: And then you have uh, Steve, Stephen R. Donaldson, and you have Terry Brooks, and you have all these people who are uh, following in that tradition, and people creating new variations on it, uh, uh, of which maybe one of the most interesting is Guy Gabriel K. Yeah. Uh, who decided, okay, I can take what I know of Tolkien. And take what I know of world history and merge them in very interesting ways. Yes. Uh, that's what I mean about using epic fantasy, using an epic fantasy template and doing something new and creative with it. And, yeah, and, and yeah. God has essentially made a good career out of doing that. He definitely has. Uh, having,
0: of course, produced, the, I think, the best book of his career just last year, as we've talked about before. Under Heaven. Yes. And I, I confess as well, I'm itching to find out whether he started work on a new one yet, which he should do soon. Soon, Guy, if you ever hear this podcast.
1: Guy, Soon. if you're listening to this, yeah, get, get on this. Well, you know, I, I I was very fond. It's interesting. I started reading Guy K with Isabel, which is very uncharacteristic. That's, uh, that was your this?
0: first Guy K novel?
1: That was my first Guy K novel. Wow. Yeah. I, I-, I own some others, but I uh, – well, typical with our friend Charles. He said, you should review this, but you need to read S- – Eight other novels. In the I, I, I read some. I, read, yeah, yeah. I, I learned what he was doing. I learned that Isabel was very uncharacteristic. But Isabel is also a very interesting novel in that it does things that a lot of modern fantasies do. There's a contemporary setting, which is which is also there in Stephen R. Donaldson. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is uh, historical material, uh, which is clearly embedded from his love of history. And there is a fantasy mythological uh, a goddess theme in it which is is very common to the traditions of high fantasy. So he really kind of took two three three traditions mm-hmm. and put them together in what I thought was a very good novel. Yeah. at that point, uh, and I read his other novels. and at that point I liked Isabel better than anything else. Yeah um, but um, but under heaven seemed to me to take what he'd been doing in all of his novels and realize it in a way that was probably more consistent. Interestingly enough, there's not a lot of fantasy in that one either.
0: There isn't a lot of, there's not a lot of fantasy in any of them, really, Gary. And fa- I mean, once you get through the original Fionavar tapestry, yeah, because mm-hmm. and, and the Summer Tree was the first book that I read of his. I bought it as a hardcover in a local bookstore here, not knowing who he was. Um, once you get out of the Fionavar tapestry, there's almost no magic in any of them. It's all history and hints of magic or impossibility, things that could be interpreted as magic but aren't overtly magic. Uh, but for a long time, my favorite book of his was Tagana, which I thought was just a magical novel. Um, mm-hmm. but this, this most recent one, I do think past, you know, sort of surpassed it just here's an unfair yeah, question. Oh, yeah, no,
1: continue. oh, go ahead. No, Well, my question is how much of what we think of as fantasy is affect and how, how much of it is what, what I call material fantasy material fantasy is crossing that line into dragons and sorcerers and wizards and that sort of thing because you're right uh both with george rr R. martin and with guy gabriel okay we're talking about people who don't make a great deal of use of of material fantasy it's I, there yeah and the possibility of fantasy is always imminent in the books but what's really um uh, makes those books effective is this feeling of fantasy yeah. the feeling
0: of another world i suspect and i'm probably going to think of a hundred examples that in fact, I can. I was going to say that I suspect that epic fantasy tends to avoid really overt um, magic until sort of certain points in its storytelling. Not the least because, I mean, if you have too much magic in a story, if you know, if anything is possible, nothing matters, you know, so the magic has to be used with restraint. But that's not really true, as I can think of exceptions. But I think in a lot of the big series, they, they tend to sort of play it down, keep it closer to historical stuff, and then have another th- another level brought in here and there throughout it. I mean, I've not read The Wheel of Time, and I've not read um, uh, Terry Brooks, and I've not read a bunch of others, but in the ones that I've read and enjoyed, they tend to be somewhat subtle about it, and it tends to be a hell of a lot more pseudo-medieval or pseudo-middle-ages sort of tromping around in wet, green places, and dealing with things you find there, rather than
1: whooping out your wand or jumping on the back of a dragon. I think there's an arc you can trace in terms of pseudo medievalia, mm. which is a word I've seen in print but I've never pronounced before. Congratulations. Um, between, well, between the romantic version of the Middle Ages, which is not something that, uh, well, Tolkien didn't really invent that there, but they're the, the really the kind of magical romantic version of the Middle Ages we mm-hmm. probably inherited from William Morris, the well at world's end and that sort of thing. Um, and, and the arc goes from. The Middle Ages is this great noble uh, Camelot kind of world in which people were honorable and uh, uh, and and, and mis uh, uh, revenge was was legitimate and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. It was a very romantic kind of thing, and, it, it, and that that medieval world was there even in *The Once and Future King*, which was one, one of my very favorite books as a kid. Yes, yeah. Until you begin to work work along this arc, until you finally get probably a George Martin. Where you get into the hard-boiled medieval yeah okay. yeah the Middle Ages was really and if, if, if actually if i would fault the game of kings uh, uh hbo series one of the things i would fault about it is it was just too clean okay it did yeah it didn't have the gritty hard-boiled feel that uh that, that that george got into the novels and that kind of new medieval new new neo <laughs> 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 yeah, that thing yeah, yeah neo medieval uh is in some ways to high fantasy what uh, Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett were to the, the de- de- detective story. Yeah, yeah. This is the world where things don't always work out, where yeah. people that you think you can trust are not as noble, where characters change in midstream, where a character who is unutterably evil uh, in in one volume may turn out to have his own motivations uh, in another when you when you begin to look at things from his perspective. And I think that's one of the things that George, even in that first volume, did very well. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and and that seems to be um, the kind of revisionism that you get in all kinds of fantasy writing. I mean, David, I'll give David Hartwell credit for the term and talking about sword and sorcery. Yeah, uh, he's talking about uh, Roger Zelazny, who was very heavily influenced by Raymond Chandler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think David may have been Zelazny he was referring to when he coined the term hard boiled. Uh, no sword and sorcery procedurals. Okay. Which essentially takes the rules of the police procedural and say, okay, I'm a wizard. I got this job. These are the rules. This is how I have to do it within the rules. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you're seeing a lot more of that. You're seeing some of that with Joe Abercrombie. You're seeing it with Charlie Houston. Uh, you're seeing people who are taking the hard-boiled world and uniting it with the fantasy world. Yeah. In a way that makes it much grittier and, to my mind, more interesting. It does. It does. Huh. Interesting. Hey, look, Gary, that, that, that's that's almost, but
0: not quite, no, a way to go, almost a podcast, just show we can talk about anything, even when we don't know that oh. much about it.
1: Okay, <laughs> uh, let me throw out the idea I had last week. Okay. Yeah. Because I got uh, I, I get lots of books to review, which I'm not going to review, and I, I'm i not going to tell the publishers to stop sending to me, because I sell them. <laughs> um, You're a bad man, Gary, yeah. I know, I'm a bad man. So I, I, I got the new Harry Turtledove novel. Good um, man, yeah Harry Turtledove is very good at what he does Yes And what he does is alternate history Yes uh, This is the second volume in an alternate World War II history There are writers uh, And Harry Turtledove started in our field He was a science fiction writer Everybody knew who Terry mm-hmm. and, and, and he found a niche in alternate history There are other people who have come into that niche Who are barely visible to us in the science fiction field Robert Conroy, for example
0: Yeah
1: uh, Newt Gingrich, of all people Yeah <laughs> no. um, and I realize now, when I look at the marketing material that comes out for these, all of the history is a spin-off genre. It no longer belongs to science fiction. It's its own thing. It has its own market. Yep. It's ha- it has its own readership. It has its own awards, the Sidewise Awards. Yes. And I, one of the things I was wondering is how often do genres, at least in a marketing sense, spin off from other genres and become their own thing in that way? I bet
0: more often than you think. It's just we don't think about it It's. Um, Yes, well, okay. In science I, I, well, fiction, we, in science fiction and fantasy's case, I reckon you could point to a bunch of instances, whether it be paranormal romance or urban fantasy or epic fantasy itself, or in science fiction's case, alternate history, steampunk, cyberpunk, where, where the label is spun off as being its own little subgenre. And cyberpunk keeps mm-hmm. chuffing along without there's no doubt doubt about that. So you can see that's happening. And um, but I think you see it also. I mean, look look at all the little sub forms of mystery. Are Cozies and police procedurals and all these kind of things are they any different from alternate history?
1: Like- yeah,
0: I think part of it's a, a matter. No, I don't
1: think it's a bad thing at all. I think no. It's, no. It's probably- well, you mentioned paranormal romance, mm. and it's clearly it's clear to me that if you look at most of the elements in most of the paranormal romance novels, you can find them twenty and thirty and forty and fifty years ago. Yeah. Uh, and what we then simply called vampire novels or zombie mm-hmm. novels or supernatural novels. Um, and now when somebody writes in in one of those cross genres, you wonder how you know, you know where it's going to be positioned. Uh, yeah. Daryl Gregory's new novel, which is very interesting. And I yeah. don't want to talk to much about it because I'm just writing a review of it. It's a zombie novel. Yeah. Uh, but Daryl Gregory is somebody. Who's written really, really interesting psychological character-based science fiction, and then wrote a fairly surrealistic Philip K. Dick-influenced novel with *Pandemonium*. He's, he's, he's doing a lot of different things. Is this does this make does this move him into that zombie market, which I guess the publisher would love if that happens, uh, or does it straddle the barriers between two genres? I don't know. Um,
0: I, I suspect it'll straddle the barrier. I don't see. Um, Daryl being absorbed into one of those, the, you know, the zombie subgenre. I mean, uh, even though I mean, let's face it, to some degree, that's what ha- that's what happened to our good friend Amelia Beamer with her very enjoyable first novel from last year, uh, *The Loving Dead*. I mean, she got kind mm-hmm. of sucked in, which is an unpleasant way of putting it. Uh, you know, she she di- dove in happily and, and
1: willingly, um, but got sucked into that whole subgenre space. It's a question I've talked to a number of people about. Amelia, since it's a first novel, it's hard to figure out. I mean, it's clearly this decision a writer has to make after a first novel. Do I go after the readership which read that as a zombie novel, or do I go after the readership Mm. which read that as a kind of literary, satirical redaction of a zombie novel? Daryl's novel has similar things going on in it. And I I think it's always a, a question that, I don't know if writers worry about this or not. I think if, writer, if any writer has an idea for a zombie, you know, if, if John Crowley has an idea for a zombie novel, he'll write it, and I'd of love course. to see it. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh,
1: but but from, from the way these genres are separated, zombie is a huge chunk of sales of any book that has a zombie in it right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's, that's their own subcategory. They have their own conventions. They have, uh, I, I know people like uh, John Skip, who are demigods in that field, and, and, and can annoy novels because he's done classic work in the field. Sure. But if I were a writer and I had a book and I realized that 70% of the sales from that book came from the zombie readership or the uh, or, or the paranormal rom- romance readership, would I be tempted to go further into that field? Uh, I, I The only answer I can think of is it probably depends on the writer.
0: It would. It would very much. When I expect to see Amelia move away from zombies, I expect to see... Um Daryl Gregory, I expect he's only visiting for a moment. I mean, his three novels, uh, two novels to date have been quite different you know, from one another. And I'd be surprised if a, a third novel was anything else. Anyway, are we running are we out of time? Uh, well, I think, put it this way, I think we're a little short, but I think we might wind up for one simple reason. We're rambling, Gary.
1: We're talking about zombie novels. This is the most popular thing we've talked about since we started doing these podcasts. (laughs) But we don't
0: have anything intelligent to say about it.
1: Next week, vampire teenagers. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love a good vampire teenage novel. I've got five
0: of them in the back. Actually, I shouldn't say that because I look over my shoulder and you know what I see? I see Teeth by
1: Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling, so I probably do. Uh, There you go. Um... But uh, but you do have a major convention coming I up, do. and I want to hear about it as soon as we talk. I hope we can talk during the convention. If not, a little luck. our first podcast after will. Absolutely.
0: Up. Absolutely. Uh, we might even, if we can, um, bring one of the – we might is free after the convention, if she's actually not exploded, uh, and get her in to talk about it as well because um, – She's a lot of she's a lot of fun. Hasn't been on in a while. We've had an awful lot of Tansy from Galactic Suburbia. Hello, Tansy on the podcast, okay. but but not so much Elisa. And I think once she's got Swancon behind her, she'll be quite happy to maybe have a chat about it and share the fun that we had drinking pink drinks at the bar. And it'll be our turn because after all, you guys in Florida and everything have been talking to us about conventions, and we've been here at home.
1: Florida, by the way, if you're ever to come to ICFA, it's mango daiquiris.
0: Mango daiquiris. I'll try to forget that because that sounds foul. On that happy note. On that happy note. It was great talking to you. I'll talk to you next week. Talk
1: to you next week. Okay.
0: Bye, Gary.